Hello, and welcome to episode two of Distributed Morphs. Today, our guests are Anna Brown and Max Bruns, both master's students here in linguistics at Southern Illinois University. The goal of this conversation is to talk about morphology in a field methods context, with those who are early in their studies, giving a perspective unlike those who have been immersed in morphology, linguistics, and for many, many years, but those who are beginning their studies, getting their perspective. I hope this conversation is illuminating to you. I know it was for me. All right, so uh, I'd like to welcome Anna and Max. Hi, Anna. Hi, Max. How are you guys doing in your uh, self-isolation uh, this week? Hello, good. Hello, I'm good. My whole family is in the same house. So Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Um, it depends on which family member you ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm asking you. I, I really like it, um, but I also don't really get annoyed. Like a lot of things that other people get annoyed about are jokes to me. So <laughs> I think my mom doesn't like it as much as I do. <laughs> and Anna, you're doing well? Yeah. Trying not to be... Uh bored even though I have a lot to do but I'm bored it doesn't really make sense but that's the way I feel sure um so you both are currently graduate students uh in linguistics and I just wondered if uh you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about your perspective on where morphology kind of fits within uh your studies and linguistics more generally Um, yeah, Anna, do you want to start or do you want me to? It's up to you. Um, it, you can go first. Okay. Uh, well, um, I actually am, uh, really attracted to morphology, particularly, um, in terms of the formal study of, of language. Um, and because I think it represents, um, uh, a probably one of the most uh, face value crossroad quote unquote elements of of that aspect of studying linguistics. So when you when you study the form of a language, you have constantly you have these moments of like that concept uh, needs to be supported. That phonetic concept needs to be supported with syntax or that syntactic concept needs to be supported with phonology. Um, and with morphology, you have uh, all of those concepts coming together <laughs> uh, to in, in pattern in patternistic ways, sort of. Um, all of those all of those elements of studying formal language uh, are required to study morphology in a way that I haven't uh, experienced in, in, um, in the other branches. So that's why I like it a lot. That was very well said. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree. Like I've always liked morphology since like my beginning intro classes that I took. Um, and I think part of that is yes, because it's kind of 
kind of integrates like all aspects of linguistics, I think, are involved in it. Um, and so in some ways, I think you have to be um, attuned to like all areas of linguistics to be able to do it. And um, there's just some really interesting things that you can do with words. And I guess I've always loved, you know, words. And um, I just think it's really cool to study words and to think about, you know, what a word actually is. And if that's necessary, I know we've talked about that in our class. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Great. So I, I want to talk about another thing that you guys are, are currently working on right now in your studies, which is obviously interacts a lot with uh, field methods or with morphology, which is field methods. Um, so you're currently working on uh, sort of trying to understand and document a language that you do not speak or uh, have previous exposure to. Um, and I'm just curious, uh, what are some of your, I mean, some of your overall experiences in that class, but in particular, what are some of your experiences and challenges with doing morphological analysis in that class? Well, um, so going back to that idea that when you do morphology, you're forced to think about a lot of different kinds of uh, linguistics, um, you end up getting questions like, does this morpho morphological process have to do more with phonetics or with phonology or with um, semantics even or syntax? Um, and so when you're trying to learn how a language that you've never uh, really interacted with or, or studied in any formal way, when you're trying to learn and, and then describe how that language works, um, morphology becomes the single most uh, explored area and also the area where you come up with probably the least amount of answers right away. Because <laughs> um, what I mean, especially when we move from tokens of speech to speech in um, elicitation and in context where there there's a lot of individual words being strung together you know sentences and stories and, and stuff like that or if you ask your speaker to describe a picture which uh, we just recently did for a text elicitation um what happens is you you already learned a lot about how the individual sounds work uh to make words presumably and then those words come together and all the sounds uh, are affected <laughs> and all of the um, all of the things that you learn about the individual words are also affected you end up continually saying to yourself this seems like it has something to do with the morphology of the language but right now I'm capable of answering a question about phonetics or um, phonology first so I would say with the field methods class you continually return to morphology in order to keep putting it off until a later date. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree. I think um, one of the challenges is that, you know, we focus on, at the beginning of the semester, we focus on um, morphology, or not morphology, sorry, uh, phonology and phonetics and the sounds of the language. Um, and then you like 
kind of start to dig into morphology a little bit. And then just as you're like making sense of some things, then you got to move into syntax in order to, you know, get more data and learn more about morphology. So I think I just think like with the whole process of it, um, there's just so much to look into that it's hard to know what exactly um, you like we should be looking at or um, we might have this little piece of data, but we need more and. Um, we have tons of data, but there's still like a lot of things that we don't know. And so I think part of the challenge I find is like, okay, what should I focus on right now? And, um, you know, where do I start with that? How do I get more data about this little piece that goes along with this little piece of data I already have? Um, and so I think that's definitely part of the challenge, um, And I also think that um, part of the biggest challenge is that, um, you know, we as the students in the class and the teacher, you know, know linguistics and then the consultant doesn't know linguistics. And so even though she can like describe um, what it means or what it might mean in this context or what context you might use it in, there's still a lot of things that... um, like because she doesn't know linguistics um that she can't really describe in the way that we can explain it and there's things that we're trying to ask her for that um we're trying not to be too uh linguistic about um and so that can be a challenge um and even as a native speaker like native speakers don't always know things explicitly that they know they know you know underneath the surface um, and so I think that also is a pretty big challenge that we have to rely on, um, her translation and her, um, explanations, I guess. Yeah. And, yeah. and completely related to that. Um, when, when you realize that your native speaker knows more than they actually are capable of articulating because the way that they were taught their own language doesn't give a complete mm-hmm. picture. Um, and then, so then we have to spend like maybe six or seven elicitations convincing the person that they are simultaneously right and wrong. <laughs> and you would never say that a consultant is wrong, of course, but, but um, maybe like the way that they perceive their own language isn't telling you enough yet as a linguist to be able to draw connections from what they know to what, what we know as linguists. Um, so that can be, that always is challenging. Yeah. You're doing, I mean, you're summing up so much of the, the classic problems with, um, with field work. Um, and also some of the, just the classic problems with sort of, uh, analyzing, uh, linguistic data and the scientific process in general, which is where do we draw the lines of, uh, analyzing um, and deciding what is the important things to focus on. Right. Um, uh, wh- what are we going to, uh, what are we observing? You know, that we always, right. when we teach someone the scientific method, we say, you know, the first step is observation, but even making that, that decision to observe is itself a decision, um, which is uh, helping us, uh, you know, narrow down our data set. Um, and that, that is a critical choice. 
Um, so I'm just curious if there are particular pieces of data that are uh, that you have found uh, illuminating or challenging. Uh, you know, I know you're only halfway through this semester in field methods uh, that, you know, you have looked at and said, maybe this is this is something that we still don't know what we're what we're looking at or something that over the course of this of this term, you've been able to uh, see the progression of your morphological analysis develop because of the fact that you've collected more data and sort of explored that scientific hypothesis or that scientific method, excuse me. Uh, with field methods, um, I, there was one thing particularly morphological that I learned only as a result of, of focusing on phonology first. Um, there were, okay. a num uh, so what happened, what happened was this was uh, fascinating um, and it, and it speaks to a classic, uh, misapproach, I think, like maybe perhaps like something that you would instinctually do, but ends up being really wrong. Um, <laughs> but you learn from, uh, you learn from your consultant things like what their alphabet shows about vowels and consonants and such. And of course, anyone who speaks English knows that, um, this is not a great way to learn vowels and consonants, but for some reason, when you approach a new language, that you might forget that that's true. Um, you know, it's it's easy to say like consonants aren't one for one in English because both C and K can make the K sound. But when you move to a different language, um, you know, you 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 might automatically forget some of those finer distinctions. Um, and so we we learned early early in one of our elicitations, we learned that. In Telugu, there's a vowel that is um, that's that's the underlying representation is um. And phonologically, this vowel changes to different. Um, so for, for people listening who are confused, the conception of this vowel for a Telugu speaker is that there's a nasal M attached. So it's the U-M sound together. But for them, for a Telugu speaker, that's just a vowel. It's not a vowel and a consonant. And um, what we learned is that in, in many, many different situations, this um sound gets changed to like on or in or n or m or even ang, like um, the vowel and the consonant both changes, but the underlying representation to a Telugu speaker is that it's the same vowel. And then, so that's true phonologically, just when that vowel is used, um, in a when that vowel as it's represented orthographically is used in different words um then phonetically it gets pronounced differently but then another fascinating thing that happens is morphophonologically uh that vowel bec can become almost unrecognizable as what a speaker who reads it on the page would recognize it as because uh the form has to continue to manipulate when other things are added to, to the words that contain the vowel. So I think one thing I learned early on working um, with the language that basically speaks to uh, being really rigorous when you pursue uh, data for, for making morphological claims 
is that uh, there are a lot of ways to go about it that seem fruitful and turn out to be unhelpful and misleading. Um, and, you know, like, for instance, like treating a vowel one way because it's written one way, even though we know that uh, what's written down and what's expressed verbally are, are vastly different things. Um, All right. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and I wanted to talk about um, something that we've talked about in our field methods class and is definitely in the data, although I'm really confused about it, um, is there is uh, a lot of Sandy rules in um, Telugu. And I don't really understand them at all <laughs> but there's supposed okay. to be a lot of them and like i guess um just like there's some instances where something like weird happens um and it seems like we're just like oh that's sandy and then we don't really i don't really know what that means but are you talking about tone sandy no no uh oh, okay ex and that's part of the reason why i'm confused because it's not tone sandy it's it's basically just like different morphological things that they do. Um, and I guess it's, it's common in, um, Indian languages. Um, and so I feel like we've really, really only scratched the surface a little tiny bit on some of that. Um, and so that's, but that's something interesting that we have found. Um, even though we haven't really, I don't think begun to dig into it a whole lot yet. Yeah, um, that 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 is challenging in a way where um, it it almost feels like no matter how much data you get, uh, you won't be able to say something definitive about it unless you. I I don't know. I I venture to say unless you learn the language. Of course, that's not really a requirement of doing work on a language, as all linguists know. But it's one of those things where every time a every time mention of Sandy is brought up, we're dealing with a different morpheme. <laughs> it'll it'll be some <laughs> sort of it'll be vastly different morphemes that all represent the same morphological concept in some way, and and then you th and that goes back to the confusion that I had with this with this one vowel that changes for Telugu speakers all the time. Um, that, that sometimes you're looking at two pieces of data that form words that seem to have nothing to do with each other, but are actually representative of the exact same process. Um, so yeah, I've found, I've definitely found that to be a challenge as well. Interesting. So how are you trying to approach these, uh, these problems, uh, with the data? Are you, um, I, I mean, I know you're, you're halfway through the semester, so, um, you know, there's obviously not, you know, you're, you're still kind of early in, in your approach to the, to, uh, the, the analysis of this language. But, um, so if you're dealing with, uh, say the, 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 the vowel changes or the Sandy phenomenon, um, what approaches are you taking to try to account for the changes that you're seeing? 
Like, how do you how do you go about collecting new data? Um, can you tell so us a little bit about with that the vowel process? change? Um, this this um vowel, uh, this um. Say that again. I'm sorry. What what was your? I'm last just comment? curious how you how you like. Uh, how you go about collecting the data to try to analyze uh, your hypothesized, or maybe you're not even at the point of a hypothesis yet, but how do right. you go about trying to get a, a, a set of data that, that would allow you to come up with a hypothesis? So um, analogously, the class has built in uh, times where outside of our meeting sessions, we have to uh, or, well, really, we get to talk to our speaker. Um, it's a lot of hours for her to be spending on one class, but um, she's our consultant, so I think she's really enjoying it. But when you when you have these meetings where you get one-on-one -on -one time with the speaker or in the, in the for the purposes of our class or in small groups, um, you take the phenomenon that, or you take a, a sample of the phenomenon that originally caught your eye. So with this um vowel, for example, um, we asked our speaker if uh, she would tell us what she thought all the vowels were in her language. She, she wrote them down, and then with with this um vowel, someone in class said, "Is there a word that uh, that you say has this um vowel in the middle of it? Um, that's how we conceive it as English speakers." And um, our consultant said. Yeah, this word visalanga. And I said, is that the A-N, the A-N sound in the middle, ang? And it's actually really an A-engma. Um, and she said, yeah. So then what happened was we took every single word that had some combination of vowel plus nasal, and we just asked her, is this that vowel that you're thinking of? Is this that vowel that you're thinking of? Um, and so I think it's all about taking a sample that initiates or sparks um, some sort of linguistic curiosity, and then coming up with uh, different ways to, to ask that speaker, okay, does, does this phenomenon occur in this environment? Does this phenomenon occur in this environment? Um, are those two environments related in any way? And, and then, of course, you have to come up with ways to use language that isn't um, linguistic. So instead of phenomena, I might say like sound change, or instead of environment, I might say like, I might just use the word word. Um, until of course you, until of course you get to the point where your participant starts to ask you uh, to, to put it in linguistic terms, which we're lucky enough now that our consultant wants to know the linguist, the linguistics behind what's happening. Um, but I, I've, I've heard stories that that's not always how it goes in field methods. Um, some people don't want to learn the linguistics. So it's a challenge between uh, asking questions that force your consultant in, of course, a consenting way to, to give up more data without betraying what kind of data you're looking to get. Um, and then it's a it's a mix it's a challenge between that and then using that data to identify more patterns, and then coming back and asking about those patterns without revealing that you're trying to get validation from your consultant. 
Excellent. Thank you. All right. So one final question for you. Um, if you just had to sort of give one big piece of advice to students who are starting to look at the morphology of an unknown language, uh, what would that advice be? My advice would be don't assume anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that is great advice. Because I feel like we can, we tend to think we know what we're talking about, yeah. but we don't. <laughs> and so it's better to just like not assume and especially like not assume that whatever language you're looking at is anything like English. Um, and so with that, I think it's important to um, like read about field methods and typology and what other languages like could possibly have in them. Um, that way you're not like not just looking at it through your English lens, but with a more wider like linguistic lens, I guess. Yeah, especially because, um, you know, when we talk about like the lens of a language, uh, we're really talking about um, if you're if you're a linguist who speaks a language, which is um, impossible not to be, I think, perhaps, uh, then your your lens is that the thing that simultaneously gives you the ability to study language and also prohibits you from being able to be unbiased. Um, so I would say if you're going to make an assumption, you should do everything in your power to disprove it as soon as possible. Um, and then the better advice would just be to take Anna's advice and not make any assumptions. Um, but I mean, I know that when I look at a data set and I can see, okay, this data set is clearly about suffixes, um, that might not be a dangerous assumption in and of itself. But it could be it could lead to uh, inquiries that are that are not helpful or they're not fruitful. So you you look at a data set and you say, OK, this has to do with suffixes. So then you go to your native speaker or you look up more data trying to find a bunch of words that fit in with this suffix pattern and you're not finding any. And you're thinking to yourself, what is going on? And then all of a sudden you realize okay, it is a case of suffixation, but this is allomorphy or, it, you know, this isn't straight suffixing. There's, there's other things going on here. And my initial assumption didn't give me the tools to make the appropriate inquiry. Um, so I think the other thing would be um, if, you, if you are going to make inquiries, don't do it based on what you think you know about the data. Do it based on what the data can do for you. You have the data sitting in front of you and you want to make an inquiry, um, but you're thinking to yourself, well, there's only one there's only one token in this data that will help me solve anything about this inquiry. Okay, well, that's not enough tokens. So go make a different inquiry. <laughs> um, and I think... Part of that is just like, I mean, obviously you have to make like some sort of, you know, educated guesses and right. uh, like, I guess I'm, I'm, when I say don't assume, I mean that, um, like you should make sure that you have evidence for why you think what you think and not exactly. just, um, you know, making, making, uh, big leaps into 
into things that you're um, you're thinking about the language. You know, you should make sure you have evidence and always just kind of. I mean, I think that comes with a little bit of like humility, almost that. Yes. <laughs> You know, you can't be overly confident in in yourself or overly confident in what you think um, because you could be wrong and that's okay. Um, It's okay to be wrong sometimes. And so I think part of that is just always, I think it's good to to even second guess yourself and that causes you to like go back through and double check things and make sure that you're actually, uh, you know, thinking through it. And it's good to think through things, you know, more than once. And so... Um, I just feel like that's, that's part of it is just, uh, you know, making sure you have the evidence and when you're not sure about yourself, um, going back through and, and making sure there are things there that you're like, oh yeah, okay. I, I think I am good in the way I'm doing this. Or maybe you're like, oh wait, maybe I need to relook at this and come back to it. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a pretty important part of it as well. Yeah, very nicely put. I think, you know, we can kind of sum that up by saying uh, the humble linguist is the good linguist. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And honestly, Um, in linguistics, you're not going to be right. Like, I think you should get it through your head that you're not going to be right. There's just going to be a lot of times where you're not wrong. Like, it's it's a language. So it's (laughs) it's it's owned and used and manipulated and changed and developed by a lot more people than just you. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank you both for taking the time to talk with me today. And I uh, wish you uh, good health in this very strange time that we're in. And uh, yeah, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to Anna and Max for joining us. Please join us next time. Uh, At this time, we still don't have a final guest schedule. The COVID-19 crisis is preventing us from being able to uh, formulate that, but uh, do know that we are working on having a number of expert guests as well as other uh, novice linguists who will be joining us and continuing these types of conversations as well. Thank you again. Thank you.